0: hello and welcome to carer catalysts a podcast that connects innovators for unpaid carers i'm suzanne co-founder and head of carer support at mobilise i'm also caring for my husband matt who has young onset parkinson's
1: and i'm james ceo and co-founder of mobilise but perhaps more importantly i'm son to my mum who has ms
0: and at mobilise we believe that with innovation technology and a bold vision we can help carers to
1: And we're bringing the same energy to this podcast, hearing from inspiring leaders in adult social care from across the country, listening to their stories about making transformational change for unpaid carers.
0: So sit back, grab a cup of tea and join us for Carer Catalysts, brought to you by Mobilise.
1: Here we go, Suzanne, a new episode. Now, you've been talking to Emily Kenway. Emily Kenway is very effective at getting around the uh, the care support sector. So I've seen lots of events and podcasts where she's been talking. Um, how was the conversation with Emily, and what was different about this conversation?
0: Oh, it was great. I really enjoyed it, and yes, I've listened to a lot of podcasts that she'd done previously, and was interested to see how it would be different. And so, as well as sharing, you know, she's got an amazing personal lived experience of caring, other people she knows, you know, and has been speaking to the, about caring, but also. She had such a passion that we all understand how caring is going to impact our lives. And this is normal. This is part of our lives. We need to embrace it. And I really love that. That really chimed with me. But what where we really ended up was a sense of some really practical suggestions and ideas about innovation and local innovation. You know, thinking about that at local authority level and how carers can be involved to really um, start up that innovation right from the very beginning. Um, So, yeah, I'd really encourage people to have a listen because I think there's lots to learn in here.
1: Brilliant. Let's play the clip.
0: Lovely. So, Emily Kenway, welcome. Emily, you're an experienced campaigner, a writer on a range of social issues, particularly modern slavery. And recently you've written a book, Who Cares?, that's featuring your own experience of caring, as well as looking into some of the solutions and some of the way forward around the topic of caring, which is really exciting to hear about. A big welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. Just lovely to have you with us and really excited to talk to you. Um, We've been reading the book and um, listening to other podcasts as well and hearing about some of your work. So really excited to open up a conversation about um, unpaid caring and um, the future of how that might look. Tell us, first of all, tell us a bit about your own experience of caring and how that motivated you for writing the book. Well, um,
2: so my mum had cancer. She actually had three types of cancer across four years. um, And she, within that, had lots of different kinds of treatments, chemotherapy, transplant. And those treatments themselves caused a lot of impairments, um, lots of side effects, lots of permanent impairments in the span of life she had. Um, And she was single, uh, so I was her primary carer. She also didn't really like having outsiders around, like, you know, people she didn't know, i.e. paid care workers, hence I did a lot of the hands-on stuff. And um, She passed away in September 2020, and um, through the years of kind of suddenly finding myself in this world, right, of sickness and hospitals and unpredictability, I um realized that sort of in every street in every neighborhood you know in in every town there were all these people doing this thing as well that i had never thought about until it was my turn as as is very common and that it was unbelievably difficult but it didn't have to be that difficult right i could really see that it was being, it's always going to be hard right because someone you love is struggling that's never easy um but there were all these kind of circumstances surrounding it that seemed to make it so much more isolating, so much more difficult, so unsupported, et cetera. Mm. And I really wanted to put that on the map, right? I could see that in debates about uh, the care crisis, you know, as it's called, that it was primarily um, being talked about as an issue for paid care workers. So obviously their conditions are often problematic, et cetera. And um, what care receivers should have, which is, of course, a very important topic. But I felt that this third stakeholder group was just missing from a lot of the conversations. And I see it all the time now. You know, when I say the statistics to people of how many people are carers, they are absolutely shocked compared with how many paid care workers there are or how many people are in care homes. So I wanted to put a book out there that was not a kind of, um, you know, a technocratic policy book, but something for everyone um, to say, like, this is common, this is normal, but it's really under supported, and we have to rearrange things. Um, and I wanted to make sure that carers felt witnessed in their experience in it as well. So it does tell my story, as, as you said, but it's a definitely a kind of minor theme in the book, um, because I've purposefully Um, interviewed carers from around the world who are doing different kinds of care you know caring for a mother with cancer is one permutation and I recognize that Um, and I went on lots of deep dives into amazing
0: research to sort of work out what's really going on. Yeah and it's it's so powerful when people share their story and hearing from other carers you know what you know that really sets the scene for the book and I think also your experience your personal lived experience kind of really comes through in the book not just in your telling of the story but in how you've Um, sort of spoken to other carers and researched the project, the topic, and how passionate you are about the topic. Mm. How has it been for you, obviously in the book, but also in sort of subsequent um, podcasts and interviews you've done and media work that you've done, you're sharing what was a really huge and complex and challenging experience for you. How has that been for you to, to share that?
2: it's been um, it's been really interesting in some ways it's been wonderful you know I feel incredibly fortunate to be a writer and therefore to have been able to turn something which you know as you can tell from the book was extremely difficult in lots of ways into uh, something that I get to sort of hold up you know an accomplishment of sorts and that is something I'm very grateful for um, when the book um the first kind of 2 or 3 months of it coming out it came out in april this year i had a real onslaught of dms emails etc from people in the us where it came out as well and in the uk oh. and that was um that was just you know heartbreaking it's not it's not that i don't know obviously about carers and care Um, but it was particularly the older old you know the kind of people in the 80s and so on emailing me from somewhere in the US that I've like never heard of you know and they've seen it at their local library and they're just emailing to say thank you for talking about this because I've never ever felt seen and that was um, you know moving and heartbreaking and and everything like that Um, I'm quite careful about you know how much I'll talk specifically about what happened I mean I will talk about it but obviously I'm always kind of being a bit protective but it has been it has taken a toll of course you know it it does doing that but I think it's I think it's so important because I see so many of the policy discussions about care and the media discussions really not understanding it properly right Um, Mm -hmm. and so if we if we don't turn our experience into knowledge into, you know, then we carry on with the same. And many people who are carers are caring for a lot longer than I was, are caring indefinitely if it's for children with additional needs, you know. And so, obviously, I wish that my mum's cancer hadn't become terminal. um, But the fact that I'm no longer a carer makes me wish to use the energy that I do have now, that I did not have then, (laughs) to speak about the topic.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so quite often, yes, a bereaved carer has has that space to do that a bit more as well. And um, but lovely to hear that you've it's really connected you with other people all over the world. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's different people in different situations. Um, and as carers, quite often, when we go into sort of that area of peer support, we're kind of opening ourselves up to that to other people's situations, and we learn a lot from that as well. But it can be quite tough to deal with too. And I wonder when we think about co-production, we know co-production is a good thing. We know we need to involve carers in the work that we're doing to build ser- the services that are there to help them. It's really valuable to get them involved. But it's it's tough as well, isn't it? You know, we're asking people who might be short on time and energy. And quite often mm-hmm. that that getting involved involves sharing their story and it, exposing them to other people's stories, too. So how does how does that work? How can that work well in sort of co-production when we're asking carers to get involved?
2: Yeah, well, I'm, you know, there's lots written about this and it's there's also a lot written on a sort of similar area, which is peer research in, in academia, right? Which is people with lived experience leading research into topics and often those overlap. So, I mean, you could spend, you could do like eight PhDs just reading the literature that's out there on how to do it well. Now, of course, with carers specifically, As you allude to, you have to think about energy levels, time, predictability of their lives, like all of these things, you know, and I can't imagine if I'd been asked to be involved in something like that, I would have loved it. And um, it would have needed to be designed in a very specific way for me to be able to engage with it or to know I could, right? Because I truly Mm -hmm. didn't know what was going to happen from one week to the next because of various of her um, symptoms around the, the, the side effects and so on um yeah so so there's that aspect I think for me one of the most important things is that um whether or not the process is is authentic right it's like you know as a person if you're going into a space where you're you're kind of being it's it's tokenistic even if it's well-meaning you know and there's already this very narrow parameters for what's Acceptable to say is needed in that space, right? So there's all these kind of received assumptions about care, and then Mm -hmm. you're brought you're plugged into that. And if you're saying something completely different, that's kind of not necessarily appreciated. So I think we have to be really conscious that co production really starts from the earliest stage of like, what is it even that we're talking about here? Not we've decided that now, tell us your pain, (laughs) right? Um, and the other thing I'd say is, you know. Um, and it's, it's something that gets talked about in lots of areas related to this, is who is in the professional roles? And if they don't have any caring experience, what's going on with your hiring practices? Now, I have never worked for a council, okay? So I honestly have no idea what recruitment looks like for councils. But mm. obviously a lot of people have been or are carers statistically, right? And a lot of carers are also working at the same time. So if you're running a team that's engaging with real-life carers, why are none of your team also real-life carers if they're not? Because I'd suggest that you're going to get a better outcome, you're going to get better knowledge and insight from the carers that are coming in if there's someone that has some understanding of what they might be experiencing.
0: Yeah, and then that's just naturally in the room. And so important, Mm. isn't it, when I share my experiences of caring, that, as you say, it's limited to what I've experienced. But because I'm a carer, I hang out with other carers and I hear their stories and you get kind of soaked in that. And I think that's the benefit you get from either just whether it's one carer in the room. There's never just one carer in the room. There's all Mm -hmm. the other carers they've interacted with that they're bringing their stories to and their experiences to. So, yeah, really important. Another thing I'm always very passionate about. If if carers are brought, you know, if there's a collective of carers to come into a focus group or something, Give them the best possible biscuits. I think that's <laughs> an important
2: thing. You know?
0: yeah. yeah, give people a nice
2: time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Understand the, the stresses that are happening. Don't try and squeeze loads of stuff into a short time period, because guess that, guess what? That's the rest of our life as well. <laughs> you
0: know? Yeah. And those All interventions can be therapeutic too. You know, you're introducing yeah. to other people that might have great network and connections. And quite often people come out feeling like, I've done something useful today. I've contributed something and it's great to get that feeling as well so you know it can be really positive as well but that design is important and as you say the flexibility as well that things might change people might not be able to come and they need to be able to say sorry it's not working today it's not happening today
2: yeah the other thing I just mentioned um because I have been working on this on a a separate project um, around engaging youth in research. If you're working with young carers, um, there are really interesting programs that are fairly new, but over the last handful of years that have developed that are looking at ways to give um, young people who are coming in as people with lived experience to research or co-production credentials, like credits, um, that they can then use to access further education and so on. And that's, you know, yes, we can, I truly, Agree that if you're coming in and you're just sharing your experience and you're not being paid and you're not getting you know a credential of any sort, that's still incredibly valuable. And I would have felt yeah. that at the time. I you know I filled in the Carers UK's um, you know State of Caring Survey loyally every year because I wanted my experience to be heard somehow. Um, but you know actually giving young carers who've obviously going to have had their education take a toll and so on that that concrete. Yeah reward is a really interesting kind of development and something that deserves more attention
0: lovely and fairly straightforward i can i can hear people mm-hmm. scribbling that tip down already mm-hmm. like yes i can act on that because yeah young carers is a real area that people are trying to get more engagement in and it and it's difficult um so yeah brilliant that's a lo- lovely tips already coming through thank you people can really action that so we recognized in the book that carers just weren't getting the attention they deserve in the public, in the media, but and most importantly, in sort of those policy discussions. Since writing the book and sort of since, you know, the COVID situation, do you feel things are getting worse? Is, there, is, there, is it going worse or is it getting better? What's your sense?
2: I mean, since COVID, I don't know, you know, COVID, it was such a moment of possibility for reorienting to pay attention to care and to the, the, that kind of reality, you know, I just remember seeing newspaper column after newspaper column from parents, from mothers usually saying, you know, oh my God, my children are at home and I'm trying to work and thinking like, yes, of course, that's really difficult. I fully respect that. I don't have children. And guess what? <laughs> We've all been doing that all along. <laughs> Loads of us, you know, who have complicated caring situations are doing this insane juggle all along before COVID. Now, I suppose I would wonder about this idea that policy is separate to the public and the media, right? Because policy responds to what's seen as salient, right? Mm. That's politics, that is what politics does um, to a large extent. And so I think that there's something here about, um, well, the work that you know, organizations like yours are doing and, and lots of organizations to continue to bat this topic into the public domain you know, because the more people hear about something, the more they think it matters. And when when you think about some of the topics that take up a huge amount, a huge amount of political and policy time, but actually pertain to a very small number of people compared to care, that kind of tells us something. So we need to keep generating these stories. And if you look at successful social justice campaigns over the years, a huge amount of that is is getting those real stories out, those investigations and so on, and keeping that going. And I see that a lot more about paid care workers than unpaid carers, right? There's Mm -hmm. been amazing investigative journalism into the conditions of paid care workers, but not so much on this topic. Um, I think that there are kind of two broad reasons why all these spaces are really neglecting us, okay? And I think the first is something that I use as a kind of, linchpin in the book, which is that we think about care as a sector. Now, obviously, that's true in lots of ways, right? It's a sector, mm-hmm. people have to commission for that sector, people work in that sector, and so on. But it's also a mindset, right, where it's something that is sectioned off from everything else, it's separate to everything else. It's not embedded in the daily nature of life. So if you don't work in the adult social care sector, then you have nothing to do with care, right? Um, you're a hairdresser or an accountant or whatever it is. You're not a carer. It's nothing to do with you. And that's partly down to this um, cultural pathologization of vulnerability we have, right? It's not It's not a compliment to be called needy, even though we're all needy, including all those of us who are fortunate enough not to have impairments at the moment. We're all needy. We need an income. We need heating, et cetera. You know, so it's this... Um, this fundamental wish not to have to look at it, which um, mm-hmm. is the reason why I included a chapter in the book on psychology in relation to care, which is I, something I had never seen in any other you know book or essay or anything on care. Having been a carer, it was so obvious to me that people were freaked out by the topic. And yes, I'm talking about people I encountered through my life, but I believe that it's true for politicians and policy people as well. Right, you're talking about something that. Can be beautiful but also is very hard and involves death and and illness and vulnerability so i think there's um a mindset issue actually that is each of ours to carry as well as a systemic thing and it's really mm-hmm. easy to ignore me saying that right and to just be like well i don't think that but truly um how many people are trying to avoid the topic even if they're working on it right um yeah. and the other thing is um the care challenge we have today, right, with far more people having certain illnesses, dementia, Parkinson's, and so on, and um, people living a lot longer with impairments of all sorts, um, does not, it cannot be accommodated easily by capitalism, okay? So capitalism is at root about kind of what, what's thought of as productive work, right, your waged work, your employment. Whereas what we're talking about is what's happening, you know, in the home, it's the things you're not getting a wage for, they don't produce goods that then sell for profit. And so historically, care has been this like externality to capitalism, right? It's just ignored, right? And so women, more women didn't work. So that was just what they did while the men did the work, capital W. Now, of course, most women are working, you know, we need well, we need like eight income households, but we need two income households, you know, Um, and, um, and it doesn't work anymore. You know, if you look at that structure, it doesn't work. So that creates a really tricky issue for people working on policy, right? Because the jigsaw pieces are very hard to put together. And that's why in the book, you know, I'm kind of saying we really need a new way of thinking about this, because you know, this equation doesn't add up, guys, it's kind of obvious. And um, that's obvious at a systemic level. But when you're a carer, it's obvious at a deeply personal level um, mm. that you can't look away from once you understand. Um, so I think I think there's kind of big, big reasons
0: for this. Yeah, fantastic. And just that sense of there's something in all of our thinking that needs to shift and change. Um, right. Both because recognizing how normal caring is, and right. it's not just another problem for the government to solve it's it's there for all of us
2: yes and this is what happens all the time when i'm doing you know book related things people say we talk about carers people say who are the carers etc etc and um to different degrees of bolshiness depending on the person i'm talking to and whether they seem to care about the topic you know i always say it's you you, you're the carer. Because, you know, the reality is, even if, if you haven't been already and you're not now, you probably will be in the future, right? Or you're going to be a care receiver. Like, good luck having a life that doesn't involve either of those sides. And so, if every single person working in policy, working in politics, wasn't like, what can I do for those people over there who sometimes we bring in to talk about what we can do for them? But was instead like, what if it's me? in three months time what do I need I think that that is the perspective we have to think through and it scares people you know I see it I go I was talking to a think tank recently who you know policy people and talking about care in this way is really frightening because it's much more comfortable to be like well social care needs x amount more funding and then it's nothing Mm. to do with you and what might happen in your life
0: yeah powerful stuff and something we can take into every conversation every meeting that starting point of this is us we're talking about not a group of other people this mm-hmm. is us in the future and hopefully there's c- current carers in the room with lived experience as well but people everyone has that potential to sit and think about what's going to happen to my parents And I, I, yes when I mean, we do a lot of talks I do that I'm really sorry I'm going to take you into this awful place of thinking what happens when my parents get ill have you talked about that what's that what's that going to mm. look like and also, as you say, you know, families nowadays are very different, aren't they? You know, it's it's not just the kind of very simple nuclear family. It's the people that we love, the people that are around us and how, mm-hmm. how that will all work together, which is that's a big, big bit you cover in the book about kinship as well. How all that is shifting and the, the kinning of people. I love I love how you talk about that and that recognises that fa- families have shifted, the people that we call family are, are different now and that we have some ownership and potential around that as well, some mm. agency to change that and impact that as well. That's quite
2: powerful. Yeah, a huge a huge amount of potential in that. I think it's a very exciting area and one that I intend to spend more time on in the future. Um, I think that families, they're changing and they're not changing. It's kind of weird. It's like, um, as I said, like l- far more women work full time than historically and out of the home than historically. So that has changed what we think the family is, right? This unit where there was one person at home doing all that stuff and one person at work, but also fewer children are being born. We've got the lowest birth rate for years at the moment in the Mm -hmm. UK. Children tend to live much further away from their parents. Much higher divorce rate means much more single, older adults, all of these things. So there's this like alleged family structure that's the unit of care the kind of biological marital family that doesn't exist in the same way anymore. And I'm sure that's only gonna escalate, right? When I think about my peers, I just don't see that changing in, you know, it's not gonna go back in time. And then additionally, um, we have these ideas, like you say, about kind of reimagining the family and what would it mean if we cultivated kinship, which, you know, is about reciprocity and care and obligation, with people who are not biologically, maritally, adoptively related to us, what does that look like? And it's really interesting examples I give in the book, which just do truly excite me, but we definitely need to do a lot more thinking about that, a lot more um, catalyzing of that to create a new version of family that's built for for now, for the 21st century, it's not 1950,
0: you know? True, true. And, and thinking about, um, you know, you've experienced through the book and through the, the research that you've done, people, um, carers on the receiving end of support or or getting involved in support, some of which work, some of which doesn't. Where, you know, what does really great support look like for carers? I know we talk about doing things with and alongside rather than to people. I think, you know, that that seems to be a, a yeah. really helpful shift that people are making. But can you share some examples of what it looks like when carers are getting great support?
2: Well, what it looks like when carers are getting great support is, for me, the kind of nub of all of this, right? Because we can, you know, I won't do it, but we could both of us rattle off statistics right <laughs> about carers today and mental health, physical health, financial health, all of these things, right? And it, if it doesn't make your heart ache, you've got a problem. <laughs> um but it doesn't have to be like that. And that's, I think, the nub of this is that if carers um, are truly supported and I'll come on to what that looks like, then what we find is that care is, as I said earlier, often difficult, but incredibly important for, for our species, actually. And I do talk about this, particularly in relation to ideas about technology being a kind of better replacement. Usually when people think about technology and care, they think about the care receivers and how it will be for them, which is obviously very important and interesting. But what about the loss of the experience of being a carer? At the moment, that means the loss of a lot of difficulty, right? Oh, oh no, I can earn enough money, you know. Um, But actually, being a carer, there's loads of interesting research that I did a deep dive on a couple of months ago about the positive aspects of being a carer, okay? Notwithstanding the difficulties, obviously, I understand those, mm-hmm. but that we learn so much from doing that. You know, we cultivate empathy, we learn to regulate our emotions, we learn what feels like it matters in life, we learn how to connect with people in the community better. You know, like I now, I'm the only one. Uh, I was the only one in my peer group who'd been a carer. Um, I still am, uh, but more of my friends have parents who are getting sick now, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can talk to them about it. I can give them advice about it and so on and so forth, right? Um, These things actually do matter. These things are much bigger than some of the policy questions. These things are about what we want to be as human beings, so care, you know, I don't I'm not going to do the like care as a heroes thing because we all hate that, but actually care as a function of humans is crucial and that's what we can unleash if we get support right. Hmm? So mm. for me, what does what does that support have to look like? Now I'm probably going to be annoying because I'm not going to sidestep the systemic here, right? First of all, we can do a lot now with the way that things are. And I, you know, I talk about that a lot in the book and we've talked about bits already. There's loads of things that can happen now, actually. However, we are working within scaffolding that is flawed, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have workplace rights as carers. We could have, you know, you can obviously introduce them without the government doing a law to make you. In fact, one of my great joys is a friend who runs quite a large organization brought in paid carers leave after listening to the audio (laughs) book, which was just like, you know, those little moments you're like, yes, Um, you know, so we don't have paid carers leave, you know, five days uh, is the kind of normal working week. And actually it needs to be shorter because we need more people in the pool of potential kin carers. Um, We need money you know we need an income as carers you cannot be putting people into poverty because someone they love got sick and i come back again to that thing of it could be you okay mm-hmm. and like think about that and what is it that you need to have in place with that in mind you know i kind of refuse not to to think about that even with that scaffolding that is so shaky and so flawed i do think there are lots of things we can do now that support carers and help unleash that um that very important function and I think this is about looking at communities and supporting communities to develop um, practices that share care around right Mm -hmm. and I am not suggesting that we don't need more funding for social care and that we should push everything back onto everyone who's in a cost of living crisis and so on I it can be misconstrued as that I think we need both Um, And so we saw in COVID, this mushrooming of mutual aid networks, right? People stepping in to create, not just to like knock on next door, but to create actual systems, you know. Um, And that has enormous potential for care. Of course, it doesn't have potential for like going and washing someone you barely know, right? But as I'm sure, you know, as well, you know, care is, we could write down a list of all the things that are caring roles entailed in tasks, right? And some of those are completely inappropriate for other people to do. Um, You know, obviously there's the the preferences of the person receiving the care, of course, Mm -hmm. are the first and foremost thing. But a lot of those could be done or could be eased by having these community um, reciprocal practices. You know, just, I would have been so grateful to be able to go really slowly to the shops, you know, and not be like, oh my God, I've got to rush doing everything. Or so grateful that when one of them, you know, million times my mum called me and I needed to leave work very quickly to go back and look after her because, you know, an infection was starting. um, That there could have been someone in, in the neighborhood, I could have sat with her for an hour and like soothed her, right? As I tried to get across London and so on and so forth. There are, there are all sorts of things and these sound really small, I know they do, and they're not flashy. And I think we're, our culture is obsessed with like, well, what's the app that's gonna solve it, you know? What's mm-hmm. the brand of what I'm saying, you know? <laughs> and actually this, this is not flashy, but it is doable. And there are really exciting models for doing it. So I, I profile one in the book that I think is absolutely genius. And I am finishing a PhD at the moment, but I am wondering about trying to set one up after my PhD. It's called Circle. Um, Hilary Cotton
1: created yes, it, Who you may
2: right, okay. <laughs> I am a big fan as well. I think she yeah. is one of the rare few who begins her process of problem solving from the people experiencing the problem and doesn't go in with a load of um, acceptable routes, right? She really goes via what people are saying. And I think that's why she created something so what she calls radical and concrete, which I just adore. Mm -hmm. Um, Circle is so simple. It's basically a um, couple of phone lines um, run by a couple of staff and then a CRM system, right? So like a kind of big database and people in the community can join and they, um, they pay a, a small fee. This was something they wanted to have a sense of ownership. Um, back to the kind of friendly society's mm-hmm. ideas of the past. Um, it can be on a sliding scale. It can have free passes and so on and so forth. Um, and that CRM system keeps track of everyone who's in the circle, the needs they might have, the things that are coming up for them on an ongoing basis, People can call and say, I need help with X, Y, and Z. Can you arrange that? And the staff will arrange it. And people self-direct the social activities and um, support that they want, right? Nobody's bringing them being like, oh, hello, person in a wheelchair. Here's this crafting club without, you know, asking if they have any interest in crafting. <laughs> you know, it's it's directed by the person. Now, what I think is so Genius about this is that the more people involved, the stronger this gets, and that is uh-huh. the opposite of our social care approach at the moment. Right? Jeez. That's that's the key. Is like how do you create structures that are positively benefited by everyone leaning on them and participating in them, rather than the opposite? And the thing that I talk about in the book, um, and I give other you know other great examples as well that I found utterly important about circle was that after a while you know it gets going people start meeting each other things are kind of going people began stepping in for each other so you Mm -hmm. know when the staff member knew oh um this person's got to have an operation so they'll need someone to collect them and check on them a few days afterwards and so on they called them and said, can I arrange that for you? And they said, oh, no, no, no. Other people from the circle are already doing it. That would never have happened without circle. And the other models, the same thing. What it needs is something, someone to step in and make people believe in it and give a systematized way of doing it. It's very low cost. You know, I'm actually genuinely appalled that circle isn't, there isn't a circle everywhere in every kind of borough or or whatever it is. Because when you look at the metrics on it, it is ridiculous that this just isn't standard practice because the metrics, this is like success metrics, you know, are, are actually astonishing. Um, and what we also need to take into account from that is that the more of that kind of care we have, to a certain extent, we can mitigate the more extreme care that's needed down the line. Right. Um, so in another example, I give of a co-housing project in London in North London, um, essentially, you know, when someone has an operation or breaks an arm or whatever, there's rotors that are already in place, that person is going to heal more effectively, they are less likely to have infections that escalate and so on. And when I was researching all of these practices, I could honestly see how, how um, kind of life saving it would have felt for me, but also that I truly think my mum's health experience would have been eased, right, by that situation and um yeah i do i think it's kind of a travesty to be honest that this idea circle is just sitting in her book and now in mine <laughs> um, and yeah. in everything i write forever um, and isn't <laughs> everywhere because it's so clever and it works so well and it came from it came from the community's needs it wasn't just yeah. you know parachuted in
0: yeah lovely and sometimes it's just that it's the catalyst that gets things started isn't it and and it what is. comes from that and hearing what you're saying right at the beginning of that bit was about it, it, the, what what we're aiming for. It's not about we're trying to fix this caring problem and we're trying to get rid of the caring problem or solve, the, you know, this person needs some care. So we're trying to find some care and then there won't be a problem anymore. There's always been a shift into, well, how can we prevent the problem? But the kind of solutions you're talking about don't just have those outcomes. They have far bigger outcomes and far more exciting and positive outcomes about people enjoying caring and appreciating that time of their life and that phase of you know humanity um as well as connecting you know giving people more natural connections as well it seems to have those kind of real um yeah much more ambitious outcomes that perhaps aren't even in the planning of other work but, yeah
2: yes it's about care as what a couple of feminist theorists call a species activity because circle isn't just for carers and people needing care right it's for mm-hmm. everyone because everyone needs care you know and I always say this I'm not like yes there's more intensive extreme forms of care I've been there I understand that and you know you might have flu next week you know there's probably someone who's living alone who's perfectly healthy normally around the corner from me but who's got flu and just wishes someone would put Lemsip on their front door and I don't know that all the way through to the person caring for someone with dementia, who's tearing their hair out, and just needs someone to watch that person for a bit, or or whatever it may be, you know, um, yeah. the the um, the system, the state provided system, as we know, is really underfunded, right? And um, yes, of course, it needs more funding, and there are people that you know are doing really good work on that. What I'm saying is, we can do things in the meantime, and they also um add huge value and we we don't seem to be paying attention to that because we've got into this fight between kind of public and private and we've left ourselves out of the equation and i think that's partly Mm -hmm. that culture thing that i said earlier about people not wanting to think about it so much yeah Um, now of course everything i'm saying would be far easier if our lives weren't ruled by needing to work as much as we work in order to get by, right? So this is why in the book, I talk about the need for normalizing a shorter working week for everyone, for men, as well mm-hmm. as women, for people who are ambitious, as well as people who just want to make a wage, for everyone, because then you, you um, open up this huge potential you know, in, mm-hmm. in every, every community for this, this whole other way of doing interdependency.
0: Yeah, and lovely to think about that shorter working week in terms of it It helps us rather than helps me. So quite often it's about more thinking about more leisure time and more me time, whereas yeah. the thinking is actually more about more us time and community time and, and, and yeah. doing those, those things that actually are the solution to the me time things as well. They are the things that drive mm-hmm. us so often. Lovely. And it makes me super proud. We have our lovely little group locally. My friend Ali went in for knee surgery. And having just had someone had been supported by my family, I thought, she lives on her own. How on earth is she going to cope? And, mm-hmm. you know, the person that set up a little Google spreadsheet, somebody else that, you know, started sort of what could we do, who can pick her up, 14 meals would be required, various bags of ice and yes. bananas when needed, right. you know, it, and it just kind of emerged from a WhatsApp group and a Google spreadsheet and a friendly neighbour with the key, you know, who <laughs> was able to put the, put right. things together.
1: And, and just, think- yeah, when
0: it happens, we thought, we've saved someone from social care having to come out this is a real win and we've all connected better so right and
2: like and what does that mean going forward that's the thing I think is really interesting because you're talking about something that when I talk to people about this and they've not heard someone sort of saying it in this way before I think people are often like but this is such a like small thing you know Mm -hmm. and I know everyone wants the like big flashy thing good luck to you winning that Um, But if you think about what you're just describing, yes, that was one person who needed something at a time, but all those people involved in that, right, are now going to feel way more at ease asking for things they need in the future. They're going to have understood there are systems we can use to do that, where you're not going to have to overextend yourself. If you can only provide one meal or you can only, you know, pop around for an hour one day in a fortnight, that's what you say you can do. No one's asking for more so yeah. you start to learn this literacy in collective care that we just don't have and i think there's a real role there for government and local authorities and so on in supporting the development of that literacy which i have never seen done
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a, a big area for potential there and it seems to be working on people's strengths there so it's also there's another aspect that commissioners can be thinking around as well which is around the kind of local economy and there's joe biden's concept of caring as infrastructure and what what kind of what might that mean in practice you know do we think local commissioners can make decisions that actually help to grow economy rather than just to spend money
2: yeah i mean we could have a whole other conversation about like growth right as a as an obsession of our current era Mm -hmm. in history but we won't um so, yeah, I mean, again, caring is infrastructure. I think it's a really useful way of thinking about it. And it needs to have you inside the infrastructure, right? Because it can devolve into this like sector thing where it's it's something else. So thinking about it, I think a lot in terms of like webs and interdependency and this kind of thing. So thinking about this kind of mesh um, uh, across everything. And I think that's... Um, That is the way to think about it really, right? If we want to undo the unnecessary difficulties carers are facing. Um, And I think we have to have that education and cultural shift that I've talked about, right? Where you just expect caring to occur, therefore what infrastructure do you need in place for everyone? Um, And a lot of this is about the reconciliation of work and care, right? And I think, you know, local authorities are actually a really exciting, petri dish for lots of things, because mm-hmm. they have quite a lot of control over their own practices. So we, there, this has happened in some cases where actually local authorities, um, I, you mentioned at the, at the start, I've worked on modern slavery a lot, totally different topic. Mm-hmm. But actually there were lots of local authorities who were kind of pioneering and looking at their procurement in relation to how it was tapping into a supply chains that might be exploitative because they can and then they can mm. produce reports and then they can lead private sector and they can lead lots of other companies and they can lead government by the hand, right? So mm. I think we have to understand across any topic that if you're working in a, in a local authority, there's a really exciting internal potential that you can reflect Outwards and used mm. as a campaigning tool and an um, exciting example, mm.
1: for me,
2: um, and it, for me, this is about taking a community wealth building approach, really, right? If we want to think about growth, I think we want to think about growth for whom right what kind of growth actually is useful if you care about care and you care about this local area. Um, And care is such a huge part of local authority expenditure, that it can be used as a kind of, um, you know, linchpin, a kind of calling card of the ethos of this local authority of the values and putting those into practice. So we have things like the Preston model that's very famous. I mean, I even, you know, I know the name of the counsellor who, who who pioneered that there, Matthew Brown. I've never met him. Why on earth do I know his name? Because it was so amazing and exciting and it happened, which is much more important than it being amazing <laughs> and exciting, right? Um, it it is practically doable. And there's there's so many reports and guidance out there on how to do it right, and case studies of places that have done it, you know, in in difficult circumstances. So I think for me, um, thinking about caring as infrastructure is really kind of being embedded in in the area you're in and understanding that it's not just infrastructure for the care needs, it's infrastructure for the whole community. You know, it's creating,
0: yeah.
2: it's creating wages for people, it's creating purpose, it's skilling someone up so they can start their local care business. Um, as a general principle, I do believe that things which are rooted in knowing the community they're operating in are going to work better i think that in general across everything (laughs) but i specifically do think about care right and it's um Mm -hmm. it's a very strange idea that we've ended up with that we could have things kind of brought in from faceless uh, companies that are cited elsewhere Mm -hmm. that don't know the community that don't know the culture here you know that the person has no tie to it may not even um, have the same kind of may not even be able to understand each other's accents. I live in Scotland, so that's obviously in my mind, Um, (laughs) you know, like there's, there's, um, all these things are going to make that actual care delivery much better as well as support um, the rest of the economy in the area. So I, Mm. I think, you know, again, like there's, there's so much out there on how to do this and, um we we really need to
0: galvanize that yeah and there's lots of passion to be harnessed there aren't there local authorities there are people working for their local authority who are passionate about that area you know and are absolutely sort of they've grown up in that area their friends and family live there and they're absolutely passionate about making a difference in that area and seeing how they could draw together that, that kind of you know that unsiloed approach rather than just well i'm working in adult social care so that's what this is all about actually thinking broader about the area and the impact that can have on the area that's exciting yes. and you know there are people that will be excited by that and will want to you know will leave a legacy not because they wanted to leave a legacy but they will just because of the kind of work they could get involved in
2: there yeah and, and in much more point than point. just the care delivery right if you take that yeah. community wealth building approach what you're doing like i said you're you're creating new entrepreneurs you're creating new people having new skills you're making sure people have wages who were unemployed before because they've been able to go into this and so on and so forth so you actually having this kind of amazing ripple effect through the prism of care
0: yeah and talking about things that are exciting you know quite often people get a bit it's, it's tough as we said at the beginning it's tough to think about caring and those sorts of things it's a mm-hmm. tough thing to start thinking about when, when you think about it in those contexts suddenly we, we're, we're into an interesting topic and it's exciting we want to our psychology is quite motivating to get there yeah so thinking back about those simple things that kind of you as a as a carer when you I know you kind of found online forums and things like that then if you went to kind of any sort of virtual cuppers and stuff how does little things like that how do they make a difference to carers just connecting them up to chat how does that make a difference
2: I honestly think it's so vital and um it was vital for me actually like really a kind of lifeline um yes I did join Um, online cuppers when you're doing American events and you say these things are called cuppers they they love it it's brilliant so you should keep keep calling it that because it really amuses people on the other side of the pond Um, yeah um, and I did I did join those um, at the start of 2020 and I wish that I'd realized they existed before that if they did or perhaps they were a COVID Mm -hmm. thing which again is like um, actually a gift you know that having to do things online is really helpful for carers Mm because a lot of us can't out and about um in the same way as other people um so of course it you know on un, it undoes the intense isolation and i you know i think back to that time period and it wasn't an emotion like it was a physical feeling of isolation it was so intense mm-hmm. and it can really um be a balm for that right that there's this slice mm-hmm. of time where there are other people who are different to you in all the ways that all humans are different, but are also like you in the shared experience and living in this world that doesn't see them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I say in the book, there was one, it's such a weird little thing to have included in the book, but there was one week where for some reason the joining link didn't come through or it went to my spam or something, you know, and I, I didn't realize until the last minute and I just cried because Mm -hmm. I couldn't join, you know, and like, that should say something (laughs) um so having that um that sense of being witnessed in your difficulty very specific very specifically for carers i think part of the reason why it's so vital is that um as i said earlier people kind of freak out about this topic right and um don't necessarily, you know, maybe they'll ask you about how the person is or what's going on with their kind of head cocked to the side, but they're generally quite Mm -hmm. uncomfortable about it. Um, And you might also be uncomfortable talking about the specifics of it. And I really noticed, so for example, in one week, someone was finding it really difficult to deal with their partner's incontinence, which their partner was very ashamed of and was hiding. and incontinence was something I'd been dealing with for you know quite a while by then, and lots of other people were, of course, because it's so common. Um, and so look, you're suddenly in a space where nobody's like twitching because you said the word incontinence, and most of us have had to navigate trying to give genuine care whilst someone is ashamed of needing that care, which is really tricky, right, to do in a kind and respectful way but still do the bodily things that have to be done to keep that person safe and, and clean and everything um, so it's actually vital for sharing those practices as well and for sharing you know things about how to navigate the bureaucracies and so on and so forth I think they are um, again like they're a small thing that means so much mm-hmm. more and has this ripple effect and I'm incredibly grateful that that existed um, and that the online forums exist as well and I always tell people who don't know about carers just go and read online forums of carers go and read Facebook groups go and read the Carers UK forum and so on and you will just see uh, this world that you're trying not to see and that doesn't have to be that way
0: yeah powerful powerful and for me you know joining a, a Parkinson's Facebook group was where I found my tribe that, that these people that were right you know quite you know caring in quite an advanced you know advanced care situation complex situations and I was like hard I felt like nobody else was doing this yes. and and these people actually have some practical answers accompanied with some emotional you know answers as well that kind of empathy of understanding that you know just because you know the answer doesn't make it any easier but it's yes. you know we're in it together is is a hugely powerful thing so I'm, I'm so grateful to still have access to that kind of support even though you know working in this sector as well can feel like sometimes oh I need yeah. to still need, I still need support I still have bad days you know it's yeah. still good to have access that. So, thinking about your, um, you know, what would be Emily Kenway's manifesto for carers? Um, you know, particularly we're thinking about local authorities, commissioners, um, and, and we're sort of thinking about that area. What would you be your your rallying cry, your manifesto there?
2: I mean, my book would be that. <laughs>
0: there
2: you go, 90,000 words of manifesto. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. My kind of rally and cry is really, truly, it doesn't have to be this way, even within the constraints that we're in. Yes, we need loads of systemic change. We need invex- in injections of funding and so on. <clears throat> but within that, like I say, we can unleash the potential of care without pretending that it's a walk in the park, without pretending that we're all heroes rather than just humans who something happened to, you know, we can still um, make changes and interventions today that actually help us see this as incredibly um, vital activity for humans and and ease those difficulties. And so, I mean, that's kind of what I what I believe is the kind of underpinning value system of how we need to think about care, rather than it's pretending it's all difficult or pretending it's all heroism, it's, um, it's, it's understanding this like hybrid situation. And so, You know, practically speaking, from the perspective of a local authority commissioner, you know, we need to be looking at community wealth building, like I've said, for all the reasons. And there's there is really good guidance out there. You know, there's um, there's an organization called the Center for Local Economic Strategies, CLES, Mm C-L-E-S. It's very Googleable. You know, Preston has put out loads of stuff about this and so on and so forth. And they They didn't do it. It didn't just happen. Right. And I think this is one of the things that um, when we work in institutions, you know, I've worked in lots of, you know, I've been employed plenty. And you start to learn the grooves of the, you know, the things that are possible, the things that are plausible, that everything's kind of set up in particular ways, like you're, you know, a shopping trolley that can only go in certain directions. All of these case studies that are out there of this community wealth building approach of um, localized care provision that like harnesses the strengths of communities and is embedded in the community started from someone saying maybe I'll do that and then having a meeting and like you know step 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 reading not understanding talking to someone trying something trying something different so on and so on and so forth that is how human endeavor succeeds and I think that We can forget that when we just see, oh, the Preston model. Yeah, well, they've done it, right? No, that was just someone who people thought was a bit crazy at first doing something. Um, So, you know, we really need to be looking at that. I think local. I think we do need to keep communicating the lack of funding. I think you know we shouldn't be afraid of shying Mm -hmm. away from that. You know, actually, I know we want to be positive and think about the things that can happen now. but actually, you know, we need to hold those people we've voted into power to account. Um, yeah. And local authorities are a vital voice for continuing to make sure the statistics are out there. You know, I use statistics from the Association of Directors of um, Adult Social Services, um, plenty, you know, like that's that's help, that is helpful, you know, for the people yeah. that are out there who've just done all the conferences, you know, that are touting for a better future. Um, and, I think for me, you know, I used to work with Westminster politics a lot, right? So I, I'm done with that. <laughs> I can't I don't have the energy for it. So for me, the thing that's truly exciting, and that I think can be done and uh, catalyzed by local authorities is about this collective care approach, which is mm-hmm. not a nebulous, fluffy thing. It's a mm-hmm. concrete thing. So that's things yeah. like yes, cotton circle. There's also an idea I talk about in the book of carers' cafes. Um, so this is um, quite an underdeveloped idea, I'd say, which it, which makes it exciting, right? Because yeah. you can, yeah. like, we, we can shape it, we can evaluate it, we can produce things that say, this is what worked, this is what didn't, let's keep going, etc. But this is about having a um, bricks and mortar space, right? Where carers can come in and can get various forms of support that they might need um and that they can spend time with the person who's receiving care there but they can also do other things they can connect right so having that actual space to connect we have a dearth of free public spaces okay wow. so ensuring that kind of thing um and what about taking a role in in instigating these community approaches these mutual aid networks um Somewhat bizarrely, my sister set up a mutual aid network during COVID in her area. It's a place called Eltham in South southeast London. Um, and um, just one of the COVID ones, you know. And then there was a little grant after yeah. the lockdowns to continue it, which she applied for and she got. Those kinds yeah. of things are actually really important, but they need a bit of additional nurturing in relation to how they intersect with the kind of care we're talking about. Because people often can't imagine that because of the extremity of something like Parkinson's or cancer or whatever, right? So I think we need to do a bit of work, joining the dots between those, working out what it would look like to actually skill local people up. What resourcing does it need? It doesn't need loads, um, but it probably needs a little bit, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. So I think that there's immense potential there that is being really untapped or undertapped and that, yeah, I, I hope I hope we're talking in a different way in five years because there's all these examples in all these places and it's almost weird if your local authorities not instigating those.
0: Lovely. Emily, that's it feels like there's hope. It feels like things Ooh. can be done differently and we can think much more positively about this as well. There's a real sense of excitement in what you're sharing there. And it doesn't let people off the hook. It needs investment, it needs money, and local authorities can can get involved. And that can be really exciting to see what starts locally um and and you know then what what ripples on from that so thank you so much for the examples you've shared for the passion you shared is absolutely fantastic um really appreciate that and i know those listening i can i can imagine people taking notes and they're off to google various things so we will set share some links alongside it as well but i know carers listening to this as well will also have a sense of hope of being seen and a sense that actually they might have some agency over what happens yeah. next um, but not on their own. You no, know, with some support. That sounds yes. a fantastic way forward. Thank you very much. It's been really fantastic to meet you. Thank
2: you.
1: Oh, what a great interview, Suzanne. Really interesting themes coming out of that. The the one that really struck me right out of the door there was this idea that caring is difficult, but it doesn't have to be that difficult. It really resonated uh, for me. I, how did it land with you?
0: Oh, absolutely. It kind of gave me a new. Um, renewed passion for actually how important caring is and how it can also be a wonderful part of our lives and that really chimes with you know mobilize and how we want carers to have the opportunity to thrive it really felt like that's possible
1: there's i thought it was really interesting how um whenever we were talking about kind of practical steps that we can take at a local level emily was really keen to pull it back to to say, actually, there's a fundamental paradigm shift that needs to happen here. And I, I think there's a bit of a tension for anybody working in the sector. We, we Things need to change um, at, at a sort of day-to-day level. So local authorities are under huge pressure around budgets. Um, carers are really uh, finding that elements of what's available at the moment are not working for them. But it, it can feel slightly indulgent to, to be thinking, well yep, fundamentally we need to change our economy and uh, un- value and understand the the place of care in a different way when actually you know there are some really practical steps that we would be that we need to be taking. I, I wonder did, did do you feel that tension or or am I making it up?
0: I think it's definitely there and I think we maybe that's the key to it. We've been trying to make practical changes to learn from each other and to implement new things. But without the paradigm shift, I don't think those things are working. I don't think those are things having as much effect as they could have. And I think that's the thing that's going to supercharge it all.
1: It's something really interesting, actually. When when I was um, on a, a, pro- a programme called Zinc, which helps uh, build, you know, exciting, innovative organisations to do things for the public good, um, we were taught to, to zoom in and zoom out all the time. So, so kind of exercising that, that muscle of being able to say, right, what is right in front of me? What do I need to do here? And then zooming out, how does that fit into a bigger picture of where we want to go? What's the point on the horizon that we need to be getting to? And I think Emily kind of really encapsulated that. Incredibly difficult to remember that in a busy day, um, you know, with, with all the pressures that local authority commissioners are under. But there are some things that we can be doing. And, and, and I thought it was interesting that co-production really came out as a theme there um have have you seen people managing that successfully in in the work that you've been doing with with local authority clients
0: I think people sometimes don't realize when they're doing it and I think that's when the co-production is really exciting yes it's good to plan things in and have the right people in the room and um, involve the right people in the project but it's where they're already drawing on that experience they're drawing on data that's already there they're drawing on narrative and stories that people have already shared and bringing that right into their piece of work that's really exciting and also where they're just trying something out like let's not sit in a room and talk about it for ages let's try it out and see what people think about it when it's outside of that lab environment when it's in the real world and we're using this new thing or we're trying this new thing what does that feel like and I think having that little bit more of daring I think is where co-production happens a lot quicker and a lot more you know as part of how work is which is great.
1: Yeah, totally. Now, um, Emily referenced a couple of organizations and things that we'll include in the show notes. Uh, But for now, Suzanne, thanks for having the the chat with her. And a massive thanks to Emily for what was a fantastic interview. Thanks for joining us with Carer Catalysts brought to you by Mobilize. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally get them from and look forward to the next episode.